So, Robinson, when people ask you, like, how many people have had the coronavirus in the United States, I'm kind of curious. You're really deep in the numbers. Do you just kind of laugh? (laughs) Yeah, there's not. I I don't think we have anywhere close to an answer for that right now. Robinson Meyer is a reporter for The Atlantic. Even with perfect data, we would probably never fully know. It's so funny because it's the most important question to some degree. Like it's the one question we'd really, really love to know about how bad this outbreak is. And it's the one we can't answer. Usually, Robinson covers the energy and climate beat. But in the last couple of months, he's reinvented himself as an expert on testing for the coronavirus. He's helping run the Atlantic's COVID tracking project. It's made him hyper aware that asking, who's had the coronavirus? It may sound simple, but answering that question is anything but. The the question we've always been trying to answer to some degree with the COVID tracking project from the beginning was not even how many people have gotten sick, but just trying to understand the scale of how many people have gotten sick. And that meant asking how many people have been tested for COVID. And the CDC was releasing testing numbers basically through January and February. And then on February 29th, it stopped publishing them. It just said, hey, state labs are going to be doing a lot of this testing. And um, that's it. So Robinson and his colleagues assembled a team of volunteers to meticulously track what each state was reporting. Every day, dozens of them watch press conferences, download testing data from the local health departments. They've been doing this for months. Our first goal was we assumed the CDC had this data somewhere in the agency and that it had just stopped publishing it because the numbers weren't flattering. So it was a little bit of like naming and shaming. It like, was, Yeah, it was very much naming and shaming. That was our theory of change for the first two weeks. And then the C- we kept doing it and the CDC kept not publishing the data. Hmm. Then we would announce milestones like, oh, the country has tested 100,000 people. And then the CDC would announce them the next day (laughs) or the White House would announce them the next day. So they were following you. Yeah, I think slowly it started to dawn on us that the White House didn't actually have a better internal source of data. This volunteer project is now one of the most comprehensive and reliable sources of coronavirus testing information out there. But last week, very quietly, the CDC launched a kind of COVID tracking project of its own, a website keeping tabs on infection rates, testing numbers, exactly what Robinson and his colleagues had been hoping to shame the CDC into doing months ago. Basically, someone happened to see it while looking for other data. And they were like, do we know about this? We were just like, wait, this is up. This is online. When did this go online? We were like, they're publishing data. It's amazing. (laughs) But when you dug into the data, what did you find? We found that it's it's funny. I mean, so their state-by-state test counts really didn't match up with ours. Hmm. Do we know why there's this discrepancy? (laughs) We don't. Uh, We've asked the CDC why, um, and they they haven't provided an answer. On today's show... We closed the country up because we just didn't have enough tests. But now that our capacity is ramping up, 
there's a different problem. Figuring out what all this new data means and who's giving the full story about it. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the last two months, the story has been the same. It's been this continual drumbeat. We need more tests. We need more tests. And that's still true, right? It is still true. It is absolutely still true. At the same time, things are much better now than they were in mid-April. And they're much better now even than they were two weeks ago. However, we still need more tests. Can we be really clear about why the testing is so important, what it allows the government to do? Because it it allows you to get control in this really important way that I think we should articulate. Yeah. So testing is the first most important step of basically the only strategy we have for dealing with a pandemic until there's a vaccine, which is keeping infectious people and contagious people away from susceptible people. And testing is so important because like that's the whole strategy, right? When we lock down, uh, even though it's not a lockdown, but when we do this thing that we've decided to call a lockdown, what we're effectively doing is being like, there's so many infectious people out there that just everyone needs to stay in their homes. And that's how we're going to keep infectious people away from susceptible people. Because we just don't know. Because we just don't know. And so, and there's no way to find out. We don't have enough tests to find out. The disease is possibly so widespread. We can't find out. Over time, what we want to be able to do is be able to say, okay, these are the infectious people. We're identifying them. And we can just preemptively keep them away from the susceptible population. And and then the susceptible population can live something closer to its normal life. And that's how we'll manage the disease. I think of it like putting a dog on a leash. Like, <laughs> you know, if you are walking your dog like without a leash, it's going to go everywhere and be crazy. But if you have the dog on a leash, it begins to go crazy. You pull it back. You pull it back. And so if your tests are showing more coronavirus, you can pull back a little bit. You can say, okay, maybe some schools are going to close. Maybe some stores are going to close. Maybe people are going to stay home. Well, and even at the most basic level, if your tests are showing more coronavirus, like the, the best case scenario here is that you just find all the cases of coronavirus before there's too much mixing in the susceptible population. And even before you need to put in these society-wide measures, you can just basically place people in quarantine, right? You can say, you are infected, you need to stay in your home. But everyone else can just kind of go about their lives. So it's not only a like a temperature check or a leash <laughs> for society, it's also at an individual level, it's the most important tool we have. There are two kinds of coronavirus tests we've all been hearing about. One is the test you get when you're sick, the viral test. Usually, they do it with a nasal swab. Sometimes it's a saliva sample. The test will tell you if you are currently infected with the virus. The other test is a blood test, also called a serology test. 
it looks for antibodies that show whether you've already fought the virus off. So it'll tell you if you had the virus in the past. Where Robinson found this discrepancy between the states and the CDC, it's with the way they report that first test, the viral test. And the reason he's been so focused on that particular metric is that it tells you a number of things at the same time. You care about testing for active infections, for looking for active infections for two reasons. The first is that basically by the number of people who are getting tested for COVID who turn out not to be sick, that gives you some confidence that like a lot of people are getting tested and you're probably catching almost all of the sick people in your testing regime. The second is that it basically gives you your baseline understanding of just how many people are sick in your area. So you're saying looking at this data can do a couple of things. It doesn't just give you a sense of how many people are testing positive, like how many people have the coronavirus out there. It also gives you a sense of just the health of the overall system and its capacity. Yes, exactly. You said that the CDC hasn't really said much about these differences in their data versus the state-level data. When you talked to experts, when you talked to people who would know what might be going on here, what did they say to you about what could be happening? So there's this funny aspect of this, which is the CDC basically says as many tests have been conducted nationwide as we do. We both think as of Friday that there's 10.7, 10.8 million tests have happened nationwide. But it apportions them across states in a completely different way than we do. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, exactly. And some states are higher, some states are lower. So it's not like the CDC is just under-reporting states across the board. It's over-reporting some states and it's under-reporting other states. And that's kind of worrying because it means that there's no... Consistency. It's harder to cite a single methodological reason why it might be happening. Here are some theories. The first is that in some states, the CDC is including the results of antibody tests. It's not only just counting these nose swab viral tests. So not just whether you actively have the virus, but whether maybe you had the virus. Exactly. Those tests are like looking for a completely different thing than we'd want the CDC to be looking for in this data set. (laughs) Um, Hmm. There's another theory basically that the states are reporting test results that affect their residents, while the CDC is reporting test results that happen territorially within that state. And so if I get tested for COVID in Camden, New Jersey, and my test result goes to Philadelphia to be tested, that test result is reported by the state government of New Jersey, because I'm a New Jersey resident, but not the state government of Pennsylvania. Hmm. However, the CDC reports it as happening in Pennsylvania because it was analyzed by a lab in Pennsylvania. This is another theory about how this discrepancy could be happening. It seems like they would have worked that out. It does seem like they would have worked that out. (laughs) But you also reported that in the early days of this pandemic, the vice president's coronavirus task force sort of reorganized the way all this information even reached the CDC. Exactly. So normally what happens with the CDC is that they they do almost exactly what um, the COVID tracking project does, which is they go to states 
and they collect data from states and that makes up the CDC data. And in fact, the CDC has staff seconded to state governments often. So they're CDC employees within state health departments. That is not what they've done for the coronavirus. What they've done for the coronavirus is set up an entirely separate reporting system that hospital administrators and healthcare providers and doctor's offices and these commercial labs and nonprofit labs, university labs are all supposed to use where they report their COVID test results directly to the CDC. And that's new. That isn't usually what happens in disease surveillance at the federal level. Yeah, I think you said in 13 states, the data the states are giving diverges from the CDCs by 25 percent, which is a pretty big gap. Exactly. Yeah. So so in Florida, for instance, the CDC reports there being 30 percent more tests happening in Florida than the state government of Florida reports. To put a finer point on this, the state of Florida says it's done around 700,000 coronavirus tests. But the CDC pegs that figure way higher, like 919,000. And that's beyond the scope of a paperwork error, basically, because at the current rate that the state government of Florida says it is conducting tests, it will hit that 919 number in two weeks. Like, that is, either we are getting results for two weeks in the future (laughs) from the CDC's point of view, or there are real major discrepancies here. I want to talk about Virginia because I know that Virginia at the state level, they were doing one of these things that can confuse test results. Exactly. And they were doing it, in fact, with the intent to deceive. Huh. So tell me a little bit about that. I know they were counting all of these coronavirus tests, both the blood tests that you get after the fact and the nasal swabs and sort of putting them in one pile Why is that problematic and why would they be doing it in the first place? So the two kinds of tests tell you different things, right? The antibody tests tell you how many people across the general population are sick, have been sick, and the viral tests tell you how many people are sick right now. And because of that, they're testing very different populations, right? The viral tests are really only testing at-risk people and people who might be sick. Zero tests, the blood tests, are trying to test the whole population, They're trying to get a good sample of everyone in Virginia. Because of that, the positive rate on the viral tests is much higher for purely natural reasons than it is on the blood tests. Because with the viral tests, you're trying to test sick people or people who might be sick or people who are very at risk or work in at-risk environments. That's a population much more likely to have COVID in it than this kind of general population sample that you're looking for in the blood test, which is everyone. Virginia right now, or Virginia as of late last week, was in the last five states by a number of testing metrics. They had tested among the fewest people per capita of their population, and they had also had a fairly high positive rate. And so what the state government of Virginia started to do was it started to report viral tests and antibody tests together in the same metric. They just said, oh, we've done X many tests. We've done this many tests. Did that move them up the charts? Like, did they look much better? (laughs) It moved them slightly up the per capita charts. It bought them about 117 people tested per 100,000. And in fact, 
the chief of staff of the governor of Virginia said in a press conference, they were asked why they were doing this. A reporter for the Virginia Times-Dispatch discovered this. They, they were doing this, and she asked them about it in the press conference. And he said, well, we think other states are doing this, and there's no way to win. We, we get criticized if we don't do it because we're the, at the bottom of this ranking, and now we're getting criticized if we do do it. There's no way to win, so we're going to do it. Hmm. But <laughs> the issue is that it is it, – it, takes two useful data sources and combines them into one useless data source because we know how to read viral data. We can, inter- we can interpret viral data in certain ways and we know how to read serology data. We can interpret it in certain ways, but we don't really know how to read them together. It, they're not really useful together. That's so craven. That's just like, just saying like, listen, other places are juking the stats. So we're going to juke the stats. We're going to do it too. And like, <laughs> if it means we can reopen sooner, that's what we're going to do. I mean, in Governor Northam's defense, he did have a press conference where his response was, listen, if you separate out the antibody tests and the nasal swab tests, the trends remain the same. Is that not a legitimate defense here? That's fine, though. The trends we care about for antibody tests and viral tests are different, right? Like, Viral tests, we want the positive rate to go down because ultimately we want fewer and fewer people to be sick. But antibody tests, the positive rate won't really go down if you're sampling right. It can only go up because more and more people will be exposed to the virus. So basically, Virginia's positivity rate of their tests did not change very much when they took out the antibody test. So I think it was 14% and then they took out the antibody test and then it was 15%. However, there weren't that many antibody tests in the sample and they were mostly negative. And so they like they were getting a lot of, they were getting a big shot in the arm of negative tests by including these antibody tests. It's funny because listening to you, I just feel like there are these levels of chaos. Like each level has its own world of chaos. You have the tests themselves, and there are a lot of different tests. And then you have kind of how the data from these tests is presented to the public. And that has its whole other level of chaos because the states are doing one thing with it. And now it looks like the federal government is doing its own thing with it. <laughs> it just it, it feels like it's hard to know the truth when there are so many complicating factors at every level of information. I think that's right. The further you get into this data, the more problems you see with it. But hmm. to some degree, that's always what data's like, right? Data always has to be made. It always has wrinkles that the people who work with the data know about, but that if you don't work with the data are not as clear to you. And I think one of the things that's been happening with this pandemic is we've all had to engage with the kind of ambiguity and uncertainty associated with working with scientific information, which isn't to say that we science doesn't know anything. It knows a lot, but it's always fighting to be able to say things clearly <laughs> and say things truthfully. And there's always a big, there's always a ton of work you have to put in to be able to say something is true or accurate. And where we're working right now is at like a society level inference. Some of this ambiguity would just be clarified with rules, rules about 
here's what each state needs to be reporting and who they need to be reporting it to, rules about when the CDC releases testing data to the public. I think the rules that we really need are rules from the CDC about exactly how each state should be publishing its data and what they're allowed to do and what they're not. And right now, that's what we don't have. And so it means that all the states are reporting data a little differently. And also the CDC is collecting data through a completely different method than the states. I mean, right now, the country's testing situation is improving, but it is improving like 56 cats. all kind of arriving to eat at the same moment, at the same time of the day. Everyone, every individual cat having taken its different route there. There is no central authority. There is no central task force that is planning how we're going to build out test capacity. Mm. Even though the CDC has started compiling this testing data, your COVID tracking project still seems to be the testing tracker of record. Like the White House cites you. What do you make of that? I mean, as a journalist, I guess it's rewarding. (laughs) It's rewarding to be on a team that is doing work that so many people find useful right now. It is frustrating that this work is being done right now by journalists and by volunteers and by experts who are donating their time. And we'd much prefer that experts paid by the government at collecting this data are the ones who do it. Yeah. I mean, I noticed this weird thing, which is that (laughs) the CDC isn't publishing its data on the weekends, but you guys are. Yes. The CDC doesn't update their data on the weekends (laughs) uh, during this public health emergency. It's just strange. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Robinson Meyer, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely, thank you. Robinson Meyer is a staff writer at The Atlantic and part of their COVID tracking project. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Jason DeLeon. We have help from Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. And today, our honorary producer is Robinson Meyer himself, who sweated it out to make sure we had decent audio. Yep, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm recording again. Can you hear me? Oh, oh, I see. Oh, oh um, okay, cool. Um, Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 